All right, good morning, Three Circle. Great to be with you guys today. We've got our campuses online. We've got our online crew and uh, all of us together. We're going to dive into the Word of God now. hope you're having a great summer. Uh, we are talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, this singular thing that, that is put into and planted into every single Christian life. Uh, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit moves in, and he moves in with the fruit of the Spirit. Don't confuse the fruit of the Spirit with the gifts of the Spirit. It's two different things. The Holy Spirit, God, Spirit, he chooses to give different Christians different gifts. And we come together like puzzle pieces. It's a really beautiful thing. And you have different gifts than I have, and I have different gifts than you have. And you have a different gift than the believers that are on either side of you. That's how it works. But that's not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, every Christian has all of the fruit of the Spirit. And it becomes more and more pronounced in your life as God does his sacred work in the life of a Christian. And we've been walking through this. And so we've anchored ourselves in this, this very important passage in Galatians where the Apostle Paul kind of expands on what Jesus told us in the Gospel of John. John said, uh, the, the Gospel of John says that Jesus told us that he wanted us to bear much fruit as Christians. But two things, we can't do it on our own and we must abide in him. And when we abide in Christ, we will begin to produce that fruit. Well, Paul in Galatians expands on that and he says, here's what the fruit is. And he gives us those components we've been looking at. And before he gives you the list and after, he tells you other important things to help you understand the whole concept. And today we're going to look at all of it together. We're going to even add a couple of verses that we've not looked at yet that I think is going to continue to, if you will, enrich what we are talking about here. Uh, and before we do, I want to give you an illustration, hopefully, that will help you understand what Paul's about to kind of expand on and help us understand about this whole thing. Uh, every year in the spring, I deal with something many of you probably deal with here in the south in your yard. It looks kind of like this. I'll show you a picture and you see what I'm talking about. So every year in the spring when things start to grow, there's grass. So I have centipede in my yard. And there's this other thing that shows up, and it's this stuff called clover. And the clovers, there it is. It looks like, oh, my goodness. And I'm... I, 11 years have been where I live, and, and every year I have the same problem. And when I talk to my buddies and yard guys that know what they're doing, they always tell me, hey, don't worry about it. And here's what they say. They say, we could kill the clover, but we're going to kill everything around it too. And, and it's going to leave these ugly brown patches. And they said, just don't worry about the clover. Here's what you do. You get that grass growing. And the grass will kill the clover. The grass, the centipede, will overtake and strangle it and, you know, and body slam, I guess, in my mind, uh, the, the clover and win the battle. But they said, we've got to create an environment for that to happen. And, and the environment is the light. As the sunlight hits your yard, it begins to grow. It's going to choke out the clover. And you know what? They're right. And what they'll do is they will create an environment for the grass to grow. Because an environment where the grass grows is also an environment where the clover dies. Does that make sense? And so what they'll do is they'll aerate my yard and they'll run this machine over it that pokes holes everywhere. It's getting the grass growing. And we'll put some fertilizer that grows the grass. And sure enough, you know what? Month goes by, you look out there and the clover's just withering away. And there's the grass. And that happens in your yard as well. Now, with that idea in mind, I want you to see that that's what Paul's going to lay out for us. Because as we look at these two things he gives us, the fruit of the Spirit, which God is growing in us, but that thing that's still there, which, which he calls the works of the flesh, that's so natural for us, we all have that. You're going to have to decide, well, how am I going to approach this situation? 
where I want the works of the flesh to die. I want that to stop. I want the fruit of the Spirit to become stronger, more pronounced. Well, Paul's going to help us with that. Galatians 5, 16 to 24. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, where's the focus? The fruit. Walk in God, abide in Christ, not the works of the flesh. Your focus as a Christian is walk by the Spirit and watch what happens naturally. And you will not gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh. You see that? So what naturally happens as you get the fruit growing is that the works of the flesh begin to die. You stop gratifying the works of your flesh. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Pause button. How many of you have felt that battle? He is describing for you a battle that breaks out in the life of every real Christian. The old thing that's still hanging around called your flesh goes to battle with this new thing, which is the spirit of God in you and the fruit of the spirit, and a battle breaks out. Have we all felt that? Every single day? I got five people that have. Everyone else needs Jesus. Right? I bet every one of us know what he is talking about. Later on, you'll know that Paul famously says, I can't do the things that I want to do, and I want to do the things that I shouldn't. It's a battle for him, too. Okay, look at this next line. This line is so deep. This is a deep end of the pool statement that I could spend weeks on that we blow over. Look what he says. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a battle raging in the life of every Christian to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. What is he talking about here? Don't miss this. This is beautiful. When you become a Christian, you begin to want different things. There's a new desire inside of you. There is something new happening inside of you. This is going to lead to the component we're going to talk about today. There's something happening in you. You've got new taste buds. When I was a kid, I thought asparagus was gross. I, I, I just thought, what are we eating here? Weeds? I mean, what is this? Just a green stick. And my family had this thing. They thought it'd be cool to take some cream cheese and ham and wrap it in that, and that would be great. Just eat it like that. And I thought, not happening. That's terrible. And then one day, as an adult... I'm at a steakhouse with some friends, and I've got this bad habit of eating off of other people's plates. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. If you ever take me to dinner, I might snap something off your plate. I do it very discreetly and with great manners. It's very <laughs> genteel how I do it, but I'll take it. And my buddy's eating that asparagus. I'm like, man, he's oh, it's delicious. Great. So oh, give me some of that, you know, and I grab, and I thought, oh, my goodness. And I ate that asparagus as a 25-year-old guy with steak, and I thought, and since then, I've been an asparagus fan. Now asparagus is great. And you know what? Asparagus didn't change. The asparagus did not change. That was the same asparagus that grossed me out when I was 5 and 8 and 13 and 18. But at 25, you know what changed? Not the asparagus, me. My adult mature, there's new taste buds. My taste buds changed, and I began to mature. And that was better to me now than the other stuff I've been eating. I thought, this is great. Now watch, watch, watch. What Paul is saying is, is that when you become a Christian, you want something new that you did not want before. And the battle raging inside of you is trying to keep you from acting on that. Your flesh doesn't like this new direction. Your flesh doesn't like it, nor does the evil one, your enemy. So that's what Paul's talking about here. He says that they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then he gives us the list. 
First, the works of the flesh. They're evident. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then he's like, that's a pretty good list. And things like that. That's what our natural nature looks like. It looks like that. We don't all do all of them. That makes it different than the fruit of the Spirit because all Christians have all the fruit of the Spirit. But as just humans with flesh, we do that kind of stuff. And he warns us. He says, look, I warn you as I've warned you before, those who do such things, which means that's your pattern, that's who you are, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, Christians, we will do such things in a moment, but it will not be our pattern. We will have new patterns. The needles move in a different direction. And then... He gives us that contrast, but the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we take it real serious. We're real serious about this. Almost violent if, if it takes it with ourselves. Okay, so... We expanded a little bit from where we've been all summer. We pulled in a few more verses here. And what do those verses we looked at for the first time today tell us? It, it tells us this. All believers experience an internal battle between our new nature in Christ and our flesh, which is our old nature. The battle rages. And I got good news for you. It will be over one day when you're dead. You're going to die one day, 100% chance. And that's when it ends. And so right now, it's just going to rage and rage and rage. But I want to tell you, like the centipede in my yard, it's stronger. Your new nature is stronger than your old nature. And if you create an environment for your new nature to grow, it will choke out the other. Gradually, that needle is going to move. New magnetic pull in your life. That's what Paul is talking about here as we dive in. And he gives us another component today. Now that we understand there's a battle. And we understand that all that's raging inside of us, but God's given us a new nature that he is working in us and out of us. Now, now we understand that there are components to the fruit of the Spirit. And the components we've looked at, like kindness and peace and love and joy. But today we're going to look at this one called goodness. Goodness. Now, most theologians, most people say the hardest one of these to deal with would be patience. That's what most people say. Theologians say the hardest one to define is goodness. And it's because goodness sits so close to where we're going to go next week, faithfulness, that you've really got to spend a lot of time with it and sit with it to find the space between, which is my job as a teacher of the word and others. And so myself and some of our other teaching pastors were hanging out in my office one day and I, and I just walked in. I said, guys, I am like every theologian that's ever come along. I'm trying to find the space between these two so we can teach them adequately. Our job, we like to say here, just so you know, we say we use scalpels, not bush hogs. Okay, that's country boy terms for how we handle the word of God. Because I grew up on a bush hog and you know, whatever's in the way, it just it, there's no accuracy. You just mow it all down, right? And we said, no, 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 the Bible calls us as preachers and teachers of the word to be surgical with how we divide the word. So we don't just come out here, woo, it's not the wild, wild west. No, no, we're, sur we're real careful with this word of God. Like that, we take it real serious. So we have spent months getting ready for this series, and I just kept coming back to this place. Goodness, how do we get there? And, and it was, watch, it was interesting. One of our campus pastors had really defined where we're going to head next week. And I said, tell me more about 
what you see there. And as he was saying what faithfulness was, we all began to see what goodness is. Okay, so I bring you today a result of a lot of talking about the Bible. And here's what we, what we believe goodness is. And we're in agreement with other theologians on this. Goodness is your new default mode. We use some modern language to help you understand. Goodness is your new default mode. That's what it is. And your, do, your new default mode as a Christian is a new desire to obey and to honor God. So it looks like, you could say that it looks like obedience or it looks like doing good stuff, but it's coming from a new default mode. Now let me tell you what I mean by default mode. It's the best way I know to describe it because in pre preparation for this message, I didn't really have an illustration and God gave me one, okay? So last week, my wife and I went to Houston, Texas with my father and mother-in-law, okay? And so my father-in-law recently had a very serious surgery. He's not completely recovered yet. He's on the road to it, but he didn't need to make a 10-hour trip and drive around and all. So basically, you know, my wife is awesome. Like, we would love for Nan to go with us, and we'd love for you to drive. You know what I mean? So I became the driver to Houston. And so we went to this wedding of, of people we really love. And so I'm the driver. And so when we, when we get in the car, I've never driven their car. Now, look, I mainly drive. i got two cars I drive, and they're both old, okay? I've got a 2011 Jeep and a 2001 Forerunner. Forerunner's got 300,000 miles. I'll tell you, Forerunners win. That's winning the game right there. And so in our house now, we've got multiple drivers and all. Our rule is whatever's last in the driveway, that's yours for the day, and everybody's got a key, and you just do it, okay? So I'm going to tell you, my, my cars I drive don't talk to me. They don't know me. They don't know me. They're utilitarian in the greatest sense of the word. Not so with my father and mother-in-law's car. They got a fancy car, all right? Fancy car. And so we go out there to get in the car, and I, I did not know this. So I open the door to this car, and I think, oh, there, that's gonna, there's a seat and a, and a steering wheel. I'm good. And I get in that thing, and everybody climbs in. And when I crank that car, stuff starts happening, y'all. Stuff starts moving, and I notice it's not moving for anyone else. It's moving for me. The steering wheel is moving. Suddenly, the seat is moving. And then, within seconds, I'm being crushed. I'm literally being crushed into the steering wheel. And as this is happening, I'm like, hey, 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 hey. And finally, I'm like this, and someone in the back, they're all laughing. And my father-in-law goes, oh, yeah, it, my, my mother-in-law, Sandra. And he says, that, that whole thing is set up. When you crank it, it goes to Sandra settings. I'm six foot, 200 pounds. Miss Sandra is not. She's a tiny little lady. In fact, I was like, you really are tiny. You are a tiny person. I'm dying here. And so they're like, you got to go hit this other button. I can barely get to it. And, and the thing is, is this car had a default mode. And the default mode, every time you got in the car, the magnetic pull pulled it right back there. You could do whatever you wanted to do. And you turn that car off, you crank it again. It's going to compact you like a tuna can. And it was made for her. So you know what I had to do? I had to remember that the whole time I was in Houston. And I would forget because I forget. And I'd be like, man, wasn't that a good meal? No one helped me one time. No one reminded me. No one warned me. Wasn't that great dinner? Here we go. Here we go again. Help, help, help. The car had a default mode. And the only way, and, and, and I couldn't do it. I only had it for the weekend. But what I could have done is I could have reset that thing for me. But I didn't do that because, you know, it's my mother-in-law. i got to stay in the good graces. When, what, what the Bible's teaching you is when you were born, you were born with a default mode. And no matter what you tried to do, you always came back there. It always came back. In your marriage, in your relationships, and everything, it just came right back to your 
flesh every time. But what the Bible is teaching us is when you become a Christian, God reprogrammed you. He gave you a new nature. The old one's still sitting there. That old default mode is still sitting there, and, and it can pull real hard on you. But you've got a choice now. You've got a new nature inside of you, and that new default mode is goodness. And that new default mode is a new desire to do what God wants you to do. It's a new desire, new taste buds. I didn't like the asparagus, but then one day I did. I grew up. I changed. Something happened inside of me from a culinary standpoint that happens to all of us spiritually. When we become Christians, we got new taste buds now. We got new desires. They were not there before. And it is a new magnetic pull. And it's beautiful that God does this in our lives. It's our new default mode. And, and it happens for every Christian when they become Christians. Now, let's do a quick... People like to call what I'm about to talk about Christianity 101. It should just be called Christianity. Okay? Because it's Christianity. You don't have Christianity without where I'm about to take you. So Jesus is on a rooftop, which is not weird back then. Everybody hung out on their rooftops. Now, we would die if we hung out on our rooftops, especially in South Alabama. You would literally melt. So no one goes, hey, hey, hey. Let me call my buddies. We're all going to hang out on the roof tonight. But back then you did. And Jesus was on his roof talking to the smartest guy in Israel, Nicodemus. And they're having a theological conversation. And here's what Jesus said to him. He said in John 3, 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's a pretty good question if you think about it. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, and now he explains, unless one is born of water, that's when you were born as a baby, that's flesh, and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not a Christian unless you've been born twice. He goes on, he says, that which, and here's the same language that Paul uses in Galatians. You ready? That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is what? Works of the flesh, fruit of the spirit. Look what he says. He's saying, Jesus, now this is Jesus' words. Jesus says, when you are born, I've got three kids that were born and I did the Lion King on all three of them. And you hold them up. And in your heart and mind, you're going, what am I gonna do? I gotta take care of this now. You know what I mean? It's gonna take all my money. And they do, all of it. But that's when they were born of water, born of flesh. All three of my children are Christians now, following Jesus, baptized. They love Jesus. So my kids have been born twice. They were born on that day. We celebrate that day. We celebrate, we celebrate their, their salvation, their second birth. We did it through baptism. We, we do that today. You've got to be born twice. And there's things that happen. Jesus said what Paul explained further. Jesus said, when you're born that first time, you got a nature. And it was flesh. And he says, and when you're born that second time, you also get a new nature. And it's spirit. Paul comes along in Galatians. He does not disagree with Jesus, of course. He only further explains. He says, yeah, yeah. The works of the flesh that comes out of that nature looks like this. And the fruit of the spirit is this. This new thing that God is doing inside of you. That new default mode, goodness, that's what he is doing inside of you. See, all humans are born, but all Christians are born again. 
We go back to the Apostle Paul's writings in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and he talks about it some more. And he makes a very distinct thing. Let's, let's make sure we clear up one side of it so that we're real clear on the other. Here we go. Here's how you become a Christian. You ready? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. Okay. So you and I don't do good things to become Christians. Everybody clear on that? You cannot. There are other denominations that will say that, but that is not biblical. That is not the gospel. But I want you to notice that Paul is so emphatic in making sure that we understand that. But he does not let a single sentence go by without also connecting the dots on what happens after you become a Christian. So we're real clear. You can't work your way to salvation. Verse 10, though, he says, we are, so, so once you become a Christian, we, this family, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what do we see here? We see that you can't work your way to your salvation, but once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit moves in, and what comes in with him? The fruit of the Spirit. And one of those is goodness, a new default mode. And do you know what happens when your default mode changes? Stuff starts happening in your activities, in your behaviors, and Paul calls that good works. You don't work for your salvation. You work from it because it's who you are now. Because you have a new nature, you start doing different things. So let's look at that. Number one, what is the term created in Christ Jesus? That's what it said. What does created in Christ Jesus mean? It means your salvation. It means your new birth. You were created by God when you were born. Flesh, water. You were created in Christ when you were saved. When you were born that second time regenerated theologians call it okay you're in christ now and in christ you have the fruit of the spirit you have a new nature you have a new default mode that's what it's saying and according to paul what happens when that default mode changes and you've got this new nature inside of you it starts coming out of you now what happens with some people and this is what religion does religion says what you should do is change how you act and it'll work its way into who you are the Bible says that's impossible that is not how it works you will not be a good person as far as your works and then become good in who you are no it's not how it works you never will what the Bible teaches is God changes who you are and you begin to do different things. The outflow of the new nature is new activity. Which is why, listen church, listen. Which is why you can take a real Christian who abides in Christ and has that new default mode and drop them into any environment and good stuff starts happening. Take a Christian and drop them in. That's, that's exactly why God does it. He puts us on mission. So you take a Christian who's abiding in Christ and the fruit is growing. And you drop them into a, a dysfunctional office space and good stuff starts to happen. That born again Christian with the goodness of God inside of them will begin to find people to serve and find people to love and find people to help. They'll become peacemakers. They'll figure out how to put relationships together. Good stuff starts happening because goodness showed up. And let me just say this to you today. If you're a Christian and you, can, and you go in and out of environments, office, schools, baseball teams, whatever, and you have no impact, you're not walking with Jesus. I'm just being honest with you. You're not walking with Jesus. 
Because Jesus grows the fruit and the fruit is evident. It's evident. You can't miss it. It's so obvious that 1 John will tell you that, that this is how you know you're a Christian. Like the fruit is not just for the world to know you're a Christian and see Jesus in you. The fruit is for you to know so you can be assured. So you go, I couldn't pull this off because the works of the flesh are natural. But the fruit of the spirit is supernatural. Now, why is goodness so important? Just like the others, we've said, remember our theological framework is that these things that Paul describes as the components of the fruit of the spirit are all simply the character of Christ. This is just Jesus on paper. And so the reason goodness is so important is because that's who he is. Goodness is an attribute of God. No one's written more extensively on this probably than even in our time, past hundred years, A.W. Tozer in his masterful work called The Holiness of God, he wrote extensively on God's attributes, one of them being goodness. What does the goodness of God mean? Well, it's so important for us to understand that God is good that, that David said, you don't need to just know he's good, you need to experience it. I can tell you what it's like to fly fish on the Snake River in the Tetons because I got to do it one time. I can tell you it's awesome and try to describe it. But you know, the best thing I wish I could do is load you all up and put you on the river. And I can say, now you go experience it because that'd be way better. I can tell you what elk look like in the wild by a river while you're fishing, but you need to go do it yourself. That's what David says. I can tell you about the goodness of God, but I want you to experience it. Look what he says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you, if you hit the pause button, you go, how do I taste God? It's kind of weird. Well, you just got to keep reading the Bible. He tells you how to do it. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and here's how. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How do I taste God? I walk with him. How do I know if a house can keep the rain off of me? Sit inside of it during a storm. Now I know. Now I know. How do I know that a boat can handle rough water? Got to go out in it. David says, I want you to know God is good, and here's how I want you to do it. Take refuge in him. Because I have. David says, I have. Experience how good he is. Taste and see that he is good. A.W. Tozer, who I just mentioned to you, quoted Julian of Norwich. 600 years ago, this lady wrote her own thoughts, and they were great, theological. She said this. I love her language. She said, this showing, she's talking about the Bible, telling you all the good things God does. You look at it, you're like, wow, God is the God of the Bible is amazing. She says, well, that showing was made, I love her language, to learn our souls. I need to start saying that to my kids. I'm going to learn your souls today. To learn or teach our souls, watch this, to cleave wisely to the goodness of God. There's going to be some times that you're not sure he's good. And you're going to have to cleave to the fact that you know he is. Because circumstances will lie to you and they'll, they'll make you wonder if he's good. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever thought, I don't know. Is God really good? And you and I are going to have to white knuckle, she says, cleave to the fact that we know he's good. God doesn't just act good because if he just acted good, he'd have good days and bad days. That's like us. But God is good. We don't even know what good is until we look at him. We don't have a standard for it. So God is good, which means he's always good and everything he allows and everything he does will end up being good. And you and I, when life gets tough, she says, we got to cleave to that. We got to white knuckle that we believe and know that God is good. 
David wrote in Psalm 119, you are good and you do good. You see that? He doesn't say, God, you do good things. He says, no, you are good and therefore you do good things. That's how it works in the Christian life. We begin to do good things because God has put goodness in us, a new default mode. To quote Tozer, he says, the whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. What an astounding thought, right, church? A staggering thought that God loves us and that he's good, that he's good. And I will tell you, you're going to have to white knuckle that, that you know he's good and that your circumstances will lie to you and the evil one will lie to you, but God is good. Now, to bring this all home for us, because we want to see goodness grow, we want to see the fruit grow. Well, you need to be aware that the works of the flesh thrive in darkness. Your old nature grows strong in darkness. The fruit of the spirit grows in the light. Let's go back to the yard. Because I need to complete the illustration. So let's just look at it again. Let's pull it up. You got clover and remember the illustration? You, you've got the, the grass. And if you get the grass growing, it'll kill the clover. But I figured out over the years a problem. We've got a big tree that just kept growing in our yard. And this thing got thick and big. And, and I realized that every year more clover was hanging on. And this year we figured out what it was. My yard guys came out and looked at it like, you know how yard guys are coming out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell me something, brother. Now, here's the problem. Do you know where the clover hangs on? Anywhere the sunlight hits my yard, the grass kills the clover. The grass grows. But everywhere there is shade, the clover grows, and it won't die. Where the darkness is, you can literally see the line of the shade that that tree throws, and you can see the grass has killed the clover, and the clover's right here, like going, <laughs> you know, an evil laugh, <laughs> whatever. There it is. Okay? Many of us in this room today, you want more of the fruit, and you wonder why. And I'll tell you why. Many of us don't see more fruit of the Spirit in our lives growing, pronounced, because we're simply walking in too much darkness. You're in the shadows. You don't have enough light. There's not enough light hitting your, hitting your Christian life. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 8 through 11, at one time you were dark. And that's who you were. At one time, that's who you were. That was your nature. That's not who you are now. Look what he says. But now you are light. That's your new nature. You are light. But look, here's the choice we got to make. You've got a new nature. It's in you. But as Christians, you must do that next thing. Walk as children of light you got to start living it. For the fruit of light, there's that language, fruit, is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, here's how you handle that clover in the yard. Get some light on it. You know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to trim the tree selectively to get light to come through. Because the only way for that grass to grow and for that clover to die is for light to hit it. And I'm going to tell you something. Many of you are Christians and you've got stuff, the works of the flesh just stay so strong in your life and you haven't been able to kill it and you're going to have to get some light on it. And I'll tell you three ways to get light on it. You're going to have to get in the word. The word is a light and it kills the works of the flesh. Prayer. You're going to have to spend some time with Jesus consistently. That's why he said abide in him. But there's a third one that's important, community. 
We need each other. We need each other. And you shine some light in the darkness and expose it, it'll run for the hills. And the fruit will grow. But you've got to get the light on it. And so here's how we're going to do it today. We don't always do this every Sunday, but I'm going to ask if you're able to stand at all of our campuses right now. At all of our campuses, your pastoral teams and ministry teams are going to come right now here at this campus. We're going to have teams of our leaders are going to come and stand at the front. Right now, we're going to be ready. And if you would just stand all over this room as you're able, and here's what I'm going to ask you, because I know many of you think that right now is the time to leave, and I'm asking you not to, unless you have to. We have volunteer teams, I get it, but if you're just going to beat the crowd to lunch, there's plenty of food here and at all of our campuses. I'm asking you to give this moment the sacredness that it needs. There are people here that need to shine some light. And one way you could do it to start is get down here today and spend some time praying with either a staff member or, or on your own. We want to give you that time. And I'm going to pray a simple prayer, say amen, and you come start getting the light on those dark places so the goodness can grow. Okay, Jesus, please do what I can't right now. In this moment, in this time, in these next few minutes, do some good sacred work here in your name, I pray. And I pray it all in Jesus' name.